Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 91, Sony FX3 Real World Review. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. If you are new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Here on the podcast, we talk about all things video, from storyboarding and script writing to how to price your work. We talk about it all on this podcast. We also have a Facebook group called Filming with Josh, where you can come and continue the podcast conversation as well as post your work, ask for feedback, check out BTS photos of shoots I'm on and more. So be sure to go to Filming with Josh and ask to join the group on Facebook. That is Filming with Josh on Facebook. I'll see you all there. On today's episode, I want to talk about the Sony FX3 and my real-world experience using it and what my overall thoughts and opinions are on this camera. And to do that, I want to start back with the A7S Gen 1, which I had, and kind of work through what led me to the FX3 and then talk a little bit about what I like about it, what I like about it versus the FX6, what I like about it versus the uh, A7S 3 what I like about it versus the A1, etc. So if you are interested in buying FX3, I know it's been out for a little while now, but if you are looking at buying one today, hopefully this will give you some food for thought on whether or not the camera is right for you. So as stated, I want to start by going back to the A7S Gen 1. I was an early adopter to Sony. Um, I used to have the A99 and A77 back in the SLT days, which SLT stands for Single Lens Translucent. You Basically, you had DSLRs or Digital Single Lens Reflex Cameras. Then you have mirrorless cameras, right, which don't have a mirror because DSLRs had a mirror. And in between the two was SLT, Single Lens Translucent. SLT was a, a, a type of technology that Sony had before mirrorless really was a thing. And essentially what it meant was that the camera did have a mirror like a DSLR, but the mirror was translucent. So you had DSLRs with a mirror, you had SLTs with a mirror that's translucent, and then you have mirrorless. So that's kind of the, the roadmap here, right? And so I had Sony SLT cameras for years. And I've owned all kinds of different brands of cameras. I've had Canon, Sony, Panasonic, Blackmagic, Olympus, Fujifilm. I've owned a bunch of different camera brands uh, and a bunch of different cameras over the years. I think I counted the other day. I've had over 30-something camera bodies. I've had a lot. (laughs) Um, But when I was with the SLTs, Sony around the time I was really working a lot of projects with the A99, A77. I mean, my career was taken off. I was doing all kinds of projects with them. Um, I loved them. And around the time I was really starting to get comfortable and get a groove with them, Sony makes this announcement that they're coming out with a camera called the A7S. And I was really happy with the A99 and A77, uh, but the A7S caught my attention. And I started doing some research and reading on it. And it was around the same time Panasonic announced the GH4, which was going to be one of the first, where I think it was the first um, small, compact, mirrorless or DSLR style camera that had 4K internally. Um, And so that was coming out. And Sony's response to that was the A7S, which was a full frame camera that could do 4K, but the 4K was externally recorded, unlike the GH4, which was internally recorded. And the thing that excited me about the A7S over the GH4 was, which I owned both, by the way. Um, but the thing that excited me about the A7S over the GH4 was that, first off, I had been working with Sony cameras for a long time up to this point, was really comfortable with them. And then second off, the A7S was this incredible low-light camera. And I had been reading all kinds of articles and things that Sony had released about the camera technology. And I was able to kind of get a sense of what to expect with the low light performance and a lot of the work I was doing was run and gun and I knew and and I did a lot of wildlife stuff at the time and I knew that having a good low light camera would be really beneficial Um, and then it also had things like um, HD up to 60 frames internally uh, in 1080p it could do 120p or 120 frames but in 720p um, but having HD up to 60 frames at the time was a big deal because 
Canon, for example, was HD up to 30 frames in their 5D3. That was like the most popular of the DSLRs at the time. Um, so that was really cool. Their, Sony's SLT cameras also had HD 60, so I had already been used to working with 60 frames. Um, but this camera continued that, right? So it was a 60 frames per second camera, um, and it had um, really good low light, as mentioned, and also really nice colors, great dynamic range. Um, I thought the image was look like it was a much, much sharper than the SLT cameras, the A99 and A77 that I had been working with. Um, and so I was like, man, this, this looks like an interesting camera. It was a different lens mount. My SLTs were a Sony A mount, um, and the A7S was Sony E mount, but Sony had adapters that allowed you to adapt the A mount to E mount, um, uh, a mount glass to E mount camera body. So I decided I would buy an A7S and buy one of those adapters and try it out. And so I ordered the A7S the day it became available to buy, which you could do back then because not a lot of people had mirrorless. Everyone was shooting with DSLRs. Mirrorless was new, especially full frame mirrorless. Um, so you, you really didn't have to worry about a, a long wait list or anything. So I literally, the day it came available to buy, I bought one and I had it within a couple days. Um, so I was an early adopter to the camera before everybody started jumping ship to Sony. And I'll tell you, I really liked a lot of things about it. The The image quality was crazy sharp and crazy detailed for an HD camera because it was built on a 12 megapixel sensor. And so it had a perfect um, downsampling to give you a really nice HD image. Um, whereas a lot of other cameras had to pixel bend to give you HD imagery. And you could tell a difference between the A7S and those pixel bend cameras because the pixel bend cameras were kind of soft and mushy. They lost a lot of detail and they had aliasing and more issues. The A7S didn't have a lot of those problems. It didn't struggle with aliasing and more. It didn't have the soft, mushy image. It was really sharp, really detailed. I mean, it was a great image. Um, and uh, it had, again, really low light. I loved working with the low light performance on that camera. Really changed the way I shot dock type work um, and, and the way I shot my wildlife content. And it had uh, the ability to jump in and out of crop mode. So you could shoot HD in full frame or in crop mode and have basically the same quality of image in both modes, which is very useful. Um, so there were a lot of things about the A7S that I liked. I thought it was a great camera, but it also had a lot of things it didn't like. It didn't have any sort of image stabilization, which the SLTs that I had actually did. They didn't have IBIS, but they had electronic image stabilization, which worked really well. The A7S didn't have any of that. So shooting handheld with a camera was really difficult, right? You had a lot of micro jitters because this is not a big camera, especially the, back then. The A7S was really small. The original was much smaller than the current A7S 3 So you had a lot of micro jitters in your shot. The battery life was atrocious. I used to carry like 10 A7S batteries with me um, any given day, and I'd go through like four or five or six of them a day. Like it was, it was really bad, <laughs> um, sometimes more than that even. Um, the autofocus was absolutely horrible, um, <laughs> just completely unusable. And as mentioned, the camera capped out at HD, whereas... The GH4 had 4K internal, and you could kind of see that that, th that was the direction cameras were going to start going. Um, other problems with the A7S Gen 1 was that the uh, it had log, S-Log uh, 2 in it, but to shoot in log, the base ISO was 3200, which was way too high. It was so freaking high. And so it was just basically unusable outside during daylight hours unless you cranked on a ton of external ND. So I felt like the log really wasn't that usable. Plus, it was really noisy, even when you exposed it well, and it was 8-bit. So the camera was good in a lot of areas, but you could tell it had a lot of room to grow. So a few years later, Sony releases the A7S II, and it fixed some of the problems. It gave it IBIS, which was fantastic, and uh, improved on the battery life by giving it uh, a little bit better battery life. The battery life still wasn't great, but it was better. And uh, the camera could do 4K internally, which was huge. And so I loved that. I bought an A7S II and worked with it for years. And uh, that camera was still only 8-bit in log, but the base ISO was actually 1600 now. Um, so log was usable on that camera. You still had to use a lot of ND during the day to use the log outside, which you have to use ND outside during the day anyway. But you have to use a lot still to use it at 1600 ISO. 
um, as the low base ISO for log, but it was way more usable than the A7S's log was. So I was able to shoot exclusively in S-Log 2 on the A7S. I, don't, I didn't feel like the 8-bit could handle S-Log 3, so I never shot S-Log 3 on it really that often, but S-Log 2 I felt comfortable with, even though it was only 8-bit. It wasn't perfect, but you know, got the job done. And I worked with that camera for five years really good camera, but it still had horrible autofocus. The battery life still left a lot to be desired. It didn't have a joystick or anything in the back of the camera for changing focus points. So changing a focus point was kind of um, a multi-step process. And beyond that, the autofocus was so bad that why even do it anyway? <laughs> um, and it still was only 8-bit. So even though the image quality was improved, it still was only 8-bit. And um, you know, it, it just, it was better in some ways, but it still wasn't quite where I wanted it to be. But the problem was, is that Sony didn't release another A7S camera for years. The S2 came out in like 2015 and Sony didn't come out with the S3 until 2020. And there for a long time, I kind of wondered if the S3 would ever come out. You'd always hear every year rumors about it coming out, but it never did. But after five long years, Sony finally came out with A7S III, and I, I bought one as fast as I could. It was an awesome camera. It was finally the A7S camera I had always kind of wanted, right? It could do 4K up to 120 internally in full frame. Um, the 4K up to 60 had no crop. The 4K 120 had a 1.1 times crop, which essentially doesn't even count as a crop. So it basically could do full frame up to 120. And the image was incredible. No pixel bending issues or anything like that. Um, it could shoot um, 4K um, at all, all frame rates in 4K could be done in 10-bit 422. It had and the XAVC SI codec, which was similar to the XAVC I codec I was working with on the FS7 at the time. And uh, that meant that you were going to have a much better file to work with in post, and it gave you a lot higher bit rate. So you're getting, you know, 10-bit 422 color plus higher bit rates for retaining more information, which is especially useful when shooting with higher frame rates and higher resolutions. So you have 4K up to 120, all in 10-bit 422, all in XAVCI or SI, and all with this really great high bit rate. And so there was so much to like about the image quality. The dynamic range was amazing. The low light was, like it's always been, really, really good. Um, and then on top of that, they gave it a dual base ISO of... 800 and 12,800. So you could work outside in the daylight at 800 ISO, but then if you find yourself in a low light position, whether inside or outside, you could jump to 12,800 ISO and still get really clean performance. Now the image at 12,800 isn't quite as clean as it is at 800, but it's not too far off either. If you overexpose by a stop or two, you can get really clean results at 12,800. So to have the base be those two base ISOs. Actually, I take that back. The bait, the low base is actually 640. That's changed on the FX3. We'll get to that later. Um, but you had 640 at the low base and 12,800 at the high base. And that was, that was cruel. That was really awesome to have that wider range of base ISOs. So you could shoot at 640 during daylight hours and 12,8, 12,800 during, you know, lower lighting conditions and still have clean results. I mean, that was really amazing. Um, and the camera body was much thicker. You had Sony's newer NPF series batteries, so the battery life was much better. You had touch screen that flipped out and rotated, which was super beneficial, especially if you wanted to film anything of yourself. Um, and then on top of that, you had the joystick on the back of the camera, which is super useful for changing autofocusing points, something I've been waiting for for a long time. I finally got that in the A7R three but I hadn't had that in the S series yet. So to have that in the S series was amazing. Um, and you know, the camera also had a, a, an improved menu structure um, and improved um, color science. Like the color science in the A7S three was really good. It got a lot of its color science from the FX9 um, and looked really, really, really nice. And it had S Cinetone that eventually, it didn't come out at first, but eventually during a firmware update, the A7S3 got S Cinetone, which was great for like live streaming or things where you aren't going to be working and grading the image in post. And so the A7S3 was like the perfect video camera for a B cam. Like it was like as good as a B cam could possibly be for the most part. I mean, I, I loved it. I thought the A7S3 was just a tremendous camera. And I, I had mine for like a year and a half and I used it on all kinds of projects. Uh, as a B camera and some projects, even as an A camera. What I loved about it was that you could just grab, grab the camera and go. You could grab it, throw it on a tripod as a B camera for interviews or stick it on a gimbal or a slider for B 
B-roll shots or or even just grab it and go handheld. You know, the viewfinder on that camera is tremendous. So you can just hold it up to your eye and tap into the camera's IBIS and use the IBIS plus good handheld positioning, holding the camera well and pressing it up into your eye with the viewfinder. And you could shoot handheld with really smooth results. I mean, it, it was just a great camera, just grab and go and just always have on you. And I, I used the heck out of the a7S III. In fact, when I first got it, the FX6 hadn't come out yet. So I was using the a7S III over my FS7 Mark II that I had at the time because the FS7 Mark II, while being a more professional cinema camera, that costs like three times the price almost as the a7S III. The a7S III's image quality was much better. Um, so the FS7, I still used it for like my A-cam for interviews and things like that. But the A7S III outshot it. It was a better quality image. So I ended up, you know, using it more than the FS7 uh, until the FX6 came out, of course. But I love the S3. It was just, it was an awesome, awesome, awesome camera. And then finally, Sony took the sensor out of the S3, right? And they put it in the FX6. And the FX6 is a tremendous camera. And I have one of those. I sold my FS7 Mark II to buy an FX6. I got one right away, right after it came out. I, I got one before they got back ordered. And uh, I've, I've had my FX6 now for uh, three years, over three years. And it's incredible. I like it so much better than I did the FS7 or FS7 Mark IIs that I owned. Um, it's just small, lightweight, great ergonomics. You got the a7S 3s image quality and all the frame rates, resolution, bit rates, etc., as the, of the S3, but in a more proper video camera that's got cache recording, built-in NDs, four channels of audio, a proper timecode, uh, BNC timecode port, SDI. I mean, everything that you expect in a professional video camera the FX6 had. Um, and I love the FX6. And so I shot with the FX6 and the A7S3 as an A cam B cam combo for uh, a long while, a year and a half or so. I mean, I, I really enjoyed that combination. Um, and it wasn't until I started getting invested in the Sony A1s that I ended up getting rid of the S3. Uh, and the reason is this. So I've always ran three cameras for the most part in my work. I've always had a video camera or s cinema camera, whatever you want to call it. I've always had that as an A cam. And then I've always had some sort of an A7S type camera as a B cam. And then I've always had a photocentric camera that I'd use as a C cam. And I'd also use that photocentric camera for time lapses and photography. So for a long time, for example, I had the FS7, the A7S2, and the A7R2. And that was a combo I ran for a long time. Then eventually it was the FS7 II, the A7R3, and then I still ran the A7S II because the S3 hadn't come out yet. Um, and so I, I had been used to working with those three styles of cameras for a long time. So naturally, I got the FX6, the A7S III, and then when the A1 came out, I loved the A1 so much that I sold my R3 and bought an A1 as my third camera. And the A1 is incredible. Like, if you don't know much about the A1, I've done multiple podcasts on it. It's one of my favorite cameras I've ever owned. And the A1 can do everything the S3 can do, but also has full frame 8K at 10-bit 422, up to 30 frames, and it can do 4K up to 60 frames in crop mode, which the A7S line can't do that. The A7S line can only do crop mode in uh, HD. And so the A1, you know, with its Super 35 4K options and its 8K options, in a lot of ways, outshot the A7S III video-wise. And then, of course, it also was a 50-megapixel stills camera that shot 30 frames per second for photography. So, like, it was an insane photo camera that also could do pretty much everything the A7S III could for video. Really, the only things that the A7S III had over the A1 was uh, overheating performance. The A1 doesn't overheat that often, but it does do it a little bit faster than the S3 does. Not bad, but um, it, it does do it a little bit quicker, which is kind of is to be expected, um, considering how much more pro processing is happening in that camera. And then two, the, the A1 pixel bends in full frame 4K. It doesn't do that in the 8K, and it doesn't do it in the Super 35 4K, but to take such a large 50 megapixel sensor and to shoot 4K in full frame, there's really only two ways to do it. You can either pixel bend the image, or you can downsample it. And to downsample it would have probably caused the camera to overheat. So they they chose, which is what the R5 does if you shoot in the 4K HQ mode by Canon. Um, and so that's why um, Sony, I believe, pixel bend the full frame 4K instead of oversampling it. Um, oversampling it would have given it a better image. Um, whereas pixel bending is safer for overheating. That being said, the full frame 4K image looks exactly like the A7S3's 
um, full frame 4K image. I mean, it, honestly, if you looked at the two side by side, you can't tell the difference. They look pretty much exactly the same and they both have great rolling shutter performance. So really the only difference that you notice when you go to the Pixel Bend full frame 4K and the A1 is that they're, it's at a higher risk of aliasing Amore. Other than that, it looks just like the S3. So the S3 beats the A1 in terms of it doesn't overheat as quickly and it doesn't pixel bend its full frame 4K. Now that doesn't necessarily mean the image is all that much better in full frame 4K, it just means it's less susceptible to aliasing Amore, which is a problem sometimes if you shoot in the A1 in full frame 4K. Not all that often, but you will see it. Like if you shoot like real estate, for example, and there's backsplash um, on, on a kitchen, you'll see aliasing Amore if you're shooting full frame 4K in the A1. Now if you go to 8K or if you go to Super 35 4K, it goes away. But in full frame 4K, you'll see that aliasing Amore there, whereas the S3 won't really have much of a problem with that. So the S3 does technically beat the A1 there. Plus, the S3 and pure overall low light performance also wins. Now, I will say the A1 is better than the S3 up until 12,800, because um, the A1's base ISOs are 800 and 4,000, whereas to get to the second base in the A7S3, you have to go all the way to 12.8. So that 4,000, 3,200, 6,400 range of ISOs is actually better on the A1 because you can just go straight to 4,000 and you have a cleaner image. And whereas in the A7S3, if you were to shoot at 4,000, 3,200, 6,400, it's going to be kind of noisy. Um, so the A1 is better in low light than the S3 up until 12.8. And then at 12.8, the S3 does take over. Um, they're close at 12.8, the S3 is better, and then it stays better from there. So those are the three areas, low light performance, like high, super high ISO low light performance, the S3 wins, overheating, the S3 wins, and the lack of aliasing and more due to no pixel bending in full frame 4K, the A7S3 wins. So there are three categories there where the A7S3 wins. But in every other way, the A1 smokes the A7S3. It smokes it for photography. It smokes it in video resolution at 8K. It smokes it by having Super 35 4K, which is so useful when you want extra reach out of your full frame glass, or if you want to use Super 35 glass. I mean, it is such a great camera. I love the A1, and I bought mine to be a C-cam and a photo camera, but I love the 8K, and I love the Super 35 4K so much, I started using it over the S3. And then I landed a job last year that required a ton of stills and I knew I was going to need two stills cameras. So I ended up selling my A7S3 early last year and I bought a second A1. So I ran the FX3 or excuse me, FX6 and two Sony A1s starting last year. And I loved that combination. I had two amazing B cameras that also shot 50 megapixel stills. And then I had the FX6 as a proper video camera. That was a great combo. But here's the thing. And this is how we get into the FX3. The FX3 had already been out for a little while at this point. And I actually picked one up at a camera store and didn't like it because I didn't like that there wasn't a viewfinder. And I didn't like that the joystick was on top of the camera body as opposed to the back of the camera. I mean, if you think about it, when you shoot photos or video on a mirrorless camera, your hands, naturally, your thumbs are going to be kind of behind this on the back of the camera body. So that's where your joystick should be. And on every single mirrorless or DSLR camera out there that has a joystick, it's all on the back of the camera, except for the FX3, which put the joystick on top of the camera. So between that and the lack of a viewfinder, the FX3 never interested me when it came out. But when I got rid of my S3 and I started rocking the two A1s with the FX6, I did start noticing some of that full frame 4K aliasing. I didn't see it all the time, but there definitely were shoots where I would see some of the aliasing. And it would be like if I was shooting for a home building client, for example, I would see it on the backsplash of a wall, of a wall in a kitchen when I'm shooting for a home building client. Or if I was filming inside of a, a, a library that's staged, the books, which have fine repeating patterns, would cause some aliasing amore. And I hate aliasing amore. And on the A1, the only way to overcome that is to jump into either 8K, which doesn't have high frame rates. And for my home building clients, they all want 60 frames when getting these gimbal shots. So that didn't work. Or the only other option of getting rid of the Super 35 or getting rid of the Aliasing Warrior is to go Super 35 4K, which does get rid of it because it's not pixel bend. However, you have to have a really wide Super 35 lens which limits your wide angle lens options. 
because you're you're cropping in on the image 1.5 times. So to get that wide angle, full frame, 60 frame per second look on the A1, you really have to stick to full frame 4K, which means on shoots where there's a lot of fine repeating patterns, aliasing and Mori can and might be an issue. And so as much as I love the A1s, and I still have both of them, and I use the crap out of them for video and for photography, they're still some of the best cameras I've ever owned in my life. I love them. But when I shot full frame 4K at, at if for any reason above, you know, 30 frames, I would see that aliasing amore. If I was shooting 30 frames or below, I just went to 8K and it wasn't a problem. But if I needed 60 frames or 120 frames of 4K in full frame, I was always having to pay attention and wonder, is there going to be aliasing amore here? And most of the time you won't see it. But when you do see it, you don't like it. Like I might see it in the back of a ball cap or on someone's belt buckle, you know, and people are paying me, you know, a decent amount of money to do video projects. And so I don't want to present them a final product that has aliasing and more on a belt buckle or on the back of a ball cap. You know, if you shoot an 8K, again, it's not an issue. I just shot a project for a sonogram company last week. We mounted one of my A1s on a boom arm over a girl's a pregnant lady's ba uh, belly and you could see the baby moving on the belly and stuff as she was getting a sonogram it was really cool and we shot the whole thing in 8k it's it looks amazing but if i would have had to take that same camera and go to 4k in full frame for any reason anything that had a fine repeating pattern in the room was going to show aliasing more so i didn't have an s3 last year after i got rid of my s3 and i picked up the you know had the two a1s and the fx6 i didn't have an s3 so i didn't have a camera that could shoot full frame 4K without aliasing Amore outside of the FX6 because I got rid of my S3. So the FX6 was the only camera I had that didn't pixel bend in full frame 4K, the only one. And I'm not going to strip my FX6 down to run it on a gimbal. So I just found myself in this weird spot where I'd be filming with the FX6 and would need a gimbal shot and I pick up an A1 and I'd always have to think, am I going to see aliasing Amore here? And I hate that. Cannot stand it. Here's the other thing. Beyond that, as much as I love the A1s, I kind of wanted a more dedicated video camera as a B camera because there's something to be said about having a B cam that has a big monitor and a nice big fat battery on the back that can power through a, an entire day on one or two, you know, V mount batteries or something similar having something like that as a dedicated B cam to me was more appealing than using a photo camera. And so as much as I love the A1s, and I, again, I still have two of them, I decided I wanted to buy a more dedicated video camera for a B camera, something that could cut right alongside my FX6 as a B cam and give me a clean 4K full frame image with no aliasing and more and that would allow me to build it up and leave it build up and rigged out for B camera work. And so I thought about buying an A7S III, right? Because I already had owned one and I loved it. But then I got to thinking about the FX3, the camera that I picked up in the store and didn't like. And I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And the thing that kept drawing me to the FX3 was the fact that you could build it into a rig really easily. Because the A7S III is your classic mirrorless camera, right? You got the classic grip and the classic viewfinder that kind of sticks up above the camera body. You know, it has the one quarter 20 hole mount on the bottom of the camera for a tripod plate or to mount a cage. And that's pretty much it. Whereas the FX3 is like an A7S3, has the same sensor, has a flip out screen, takes the same battery, has the same frame rates and resolution options, the same codec. However, it also has no viewfinder, and has a flat top, which has quarter 20 holes all across it. So you could put something like a NATO rail. And it has screw holes on the sides of the camera, making mounting a cage more sturdy. And I got to look in and I was like, man, that, that's a cool camera for a dedicated video camera. It's like the S3, but it's more designed for video. And as much as I love shooting with a viewfinder on the A7S III, I was looking to get a dedicated B cam that I could put a monitor on and have a monitor on it most of the time. And I wanted to design it to where I could easily put a monitor on the camera, but then take the monitor off 
without tools when I didn't need it if I wanted to throw the camera on a gimbal or a slider. And so I, I thought, you know, by looking at the FX3, I was like, man, I could buy this camera and it would be just like the A7S3 that I used to have, only in a body that is better designed for going on gimbals and drones, for mounting cages, for mounting monitors, etc. And so I decided I'm going to try it out. So I bought one. And let me tell you, I absolutely love it more than the S3. And I never thought I would say that because I love the S3 so much, but I do. I think the FX3 is tremendous. It is one of the best dedicated video cameras I've ever worked with. Now I've, you know, owned FS7s, FS7 Mark IIs. I have the FX6. I love the FX6. I told you I have two A1s. I love them. They're all great. But the FX3 is just different. There's just something about it that I love. And I want to tell you like all the things that I think make it such an, a unique camera and why I feel like it fits into my system so well. To start, I love the ergonomics. I don't like the joystick being on top of the camera. I will say that is my one gripe. I don't understand why they put the joystick on top of the camera. I guess they did it if you're like holding it to your chest or something. Maybe they thought that it'd be easier for your thumb or something. I don't know. But it, having the joystick on top of the camera is like my one complaint. It should be on the back of the camera like it is on the A7S III and A1. I don't understand that. Um, so the, if I want to nitpick about the FX3, that's the one complaint I have is that the joystick is on top of the camera. But outside of that, the ergonomics are fantastic. I, I've never owned a mirrorless camera that didn't have a viewfinder, and I do still like having a viewfinder on my A1s because I use them for photography or I use them without a cage if I'm shooting handheld for video. I, I like having the viewfinder for that. But the FX3, I'm either going to put it on a gimbal or a drone or a jib or something like that where I'm not going to be using a viewfinder anyway, or I'm going to be putting it on a, a tripod as a B camera during interviews where I'm going to want to monitor, or I'm going to shoot handheld with it, rigged up with a cage and a V-mount, again, where I'm going to want to monitor. And so I found out, you know, that this camera, despite not having a viewfinder, it really isn't a problem because I'm not shooting it the same way I would a mirrorless camera. Like a typical mirrorless camera, I don't put a cage on it. A typical mirrorless camera like an A1 you know, I shoot photos with it up to my eye. I'll shoot handheld video up to it with my eye. And so I don't, you know, I, I, I really want a viewfinder, but in this camera, I'm not using one. I'm sticking it on a gimbal or a jib or a slider, or I'm throwing it on a tripod and then, and I'm either going to use a monitor or I'm going to use a small flip out screen, or I'm going to shoot handheld with a monitor. So like I find out, I found out that through, you know, working with this camera, I don't miss not having a viewfinder. And the quarter 20 holes really are useful. Um, I have a small rig cage for this camera that I think is tremendous. And it fits the camera like a glove. Doesn't really add much bulk or weight or anything. And what's cool is it bolts to the camera in three spots. One underneath the camera on the bottom. And then on the sides, there's quarter 20 holes in the FX3. So you've got a one bolt on the bottom of the camera and one bolt on both sides of the camera, giving you three bolts, which makes the cage really strong on the FX3. You don't have to worry about it wiggling or spinning or anything like that. Now, I will say I've had the screws on the sides rattle loose before um, from the small rig cage. So if you're going to do that, I do, you know, use that cage like I am using. You do need to put a little bit of blue Loctite on the bolts when you put them in. Blue Loctite means you can get it back out, but it's not going to slip out on its own. So I have taken the FX3 cage and just taken a little bit of um, blue Loctite and put them on the bolts, the quarter 20 bolts, um, and then that'll stick it in there. But having those three different mounting points is awesome because normally you don't have those kind of mounting points on a mirrorless camera. You have to do all kinds of other things like take off the neck strap holders in order to, to secure the camera in a cage better. But that's not a problem in the FX3. Is bolt it to the camera with three quarter 20 bolts. So ergonomically speaking, that's amazing. And by having a flat top with no viewfinder, it means you can mount something like a NATO rail to the top of the camera really easily. Now the FX3 obviously comes with a top handle that allows you to record uh, three independent tracks of audio. You got XLR1, XLR2, and then a 3.5 millimeter jack that's on the back side of the handle that gives you the ability to run two XLR mics and a 3.5 millimeter cable for a 
like a shotgun mic, for example. So it's really easy to run something like a Rode VideoMic NTG for NAT sound as a shotgun mic and then mount like a dual wireless receiver that goes into XLR1 and XLR2 and have three independently recorded channels of audio. Like, that's great. That being said, I don't do that that often because I have an FX6. So if I'm recording something that I need audio recorded internally in a camera, I'm going to use the FX6 or I'm going to use my sound devices, MixPre 6.2 recorder. So I'm not too concerned about the top handle of the FX3, but it's cool to have because if something ever happened to my FX6, I would have a the FX3 as a backup. So the top handle for the FX3 is useful from a backup standpoint, but it's not something I use all that often. But if you don't own a camera like the FX6, the top handle is amazing. But I don't use the top panel. So what I do is on the on the top of the FX3, because there's quarter 20 holes all across the top, small rig makes a little NATO rail. In fact, if you buy the cage combo, you can get this NATO rail with the cage, but it's a little NATO rail that bolts to the top quarter 20 holes on top of the camera because there's no viewfinder there, right? And so instead of a viewfinder, you have a flat spot with quarter 20s. And so I'm able to bolt that NATO rail, which means I have a spot that I can put my own handle. And small rig makes a really great NATO clamping handle that you can slide right onto the FX3 via the NATO rail and just lock it. And I love that because it allows me to add or remove a handle in seconds without any tools. See, with the FX3's top handle, you would have to take a screwdriver out and unbolt it or bolt it back on. But you don't have to do that with the NATO rail on the and a NATO rail uh, mounted handle. So I love that the ergonomics of the body allows you to put a NATO rail there and be able to slide it, uh, a uh, um, handle on and slide it right back off. The only other way to do that on a mirrorless camera is you'd have to have a really big cage and put the NATO rail handle on top of the cage. But the FX3's design makes it where you don't have to have a big cage to do that. You can just do it straight to the camera body. So it makes adding and removing a handle easily. So I could be shooting interviews and have it set up with a handle and a monitor for a B cam, but then slide the handle off with my thumb by just ratcheting a screw and and take the camera and put it on a gimbal um you know and then when i'm done with the gimbal shot i can slide the handle back on and lock it back on the nato rail so having that kind of flexibility is so so useful and then like the fx3 you still have the flip out screen now i do like a tilt screen in a mirrorless camera because I like that the a tilt, not a flip, but a tilt screen like the A1, I like that a tilt screen stays in line with the camera. That being said, a flip out screen is useful if you're going to do any sort of vlogging or filming yourself. And I might use the FX3 to film myself for a how-to video or something like that. So having the flip out screen is useful. And then of course, you've got the same nice battery that the A7S III has, and you have um, really great um, card slot options. You get to run either UHS-2 cards or you can run CF Express Type A cards. I just run CF Express Type A cards in all my cameras, but you could run UHS-2 cards because the card slots are backwards compatible. You can do, you know, relay recording. You can do um, simultaneous recording. There's all kinds of options there. So you get everything that the A7S III had in terms of battery and cards you get in this in this camera, which is great. And a very similar flip out screen, which again is great. Now, a lot of people think that the FX3 is not weather sealed because it has a fan built into the back of the camera. And I wanna talk about that. So the S3 is marketed as being weather sealed. So is the A1 and so is the FX3. And you might wonder, well, how is that possible? There's a fan on the back of the camera, but there's a really great diagram online. And if you can find it, you'll see what I'm talking about. But the diagram shows how the FX3 was built and how it's built is the whole entire body is weather sealed. The fan is actually mounted to the exterior of the body. So you have like, like the fan looks like it's all integrated and it kind of is integrated into the molding of the camera. But in actuality, there's like an internal chassis that is completely weather sealed. And then the fan is mounted externally to that. And so the fan is actually technically still outside of the interior compartment of the camera. So the camera itself is still weather sealed. Now, I don't know if water affects the fan or not. I have no clue. I've never you know, shot with mine and such a treacherous downpour to test that out. But I can tell you that the guts of the camera are still weather sealed despite having a fan on the back. It would be like taking an A7S III and buying one of those little portable fans that some of these companies are making now that you can mount to your camera. It'd be like that. It'd be like taking the weather sealed S3 and buying one of those little fans and sticking it to the back of the camera. So it's 
cool because the camera maintains its weather sealing despite having a fan on it. And the fan is useful. Now, I said earlier the A1s overheat faster than the S3. Now, the A1s don't overheat very often. I've had them overheat on me twice. And if you add an external battery to the A1, it doesn't overheat at all, at least not in my experience. But the S3 was even better, so I never really had much of a problem with overheating. However, having that fan on the camera body does give you a little bit of peace of mind in knowing that if you were in a position where it's really freaking hot, like maybe you're in a factory and it's just hot, that you can worry less about the risk of overheating. I'm all for it. Like it's not something that ever really bothered me on the S3. I never had an overheating issue with the S3, but this camera having a fan, it's just one extra step to help make sure it never happens. So I'm all for it and it keeps the camera weather sealed. So I think that's great. Honestly, I think most professional video cameras should have some sort of a fan. Reds have fans, A7, uh, or excuse me, uh, FX6s have fans, FS7s have fans, FX9s have fans, FS5 has, has fans, the C300, C500 series by Canon has fans. Professional video cameras should have fans. There's a lot going on inside the camera and anything you can do to keep it cool, to make sure it doesn't overheat on a paying job is, is a good thing. And the S3, while I never had it overheat on me before, you just never know. So having that on the camera body is a huge plus just to give you that extra peace of mind and making sure your camera doesn't have an issue during a really important page shoot. Next, the FX3, after it came out, like when it first came out, I remember thinking, what is the big difference between this camera and the a7S3? I mean, the a7S3 doesn't come with a top handle like the FX3, and the a7S3 doesn't have a fan, and the a7S3 has a viewfinder, whereas the FX3 does not. But other than that, like what are the differences? Because there really wasn't very many differences. But that has all changed because Sony has come out with numerous firmware updates for the FX3, and none of these have been available for the a7S3, which to me is really telling. It's letting you know that they're trying to segment these two cameras, which is kind of weird because when they came out with the a7S3, it was really obvious that this was a designated video camera, and it was marketed as such, and people like myself who bought the S3 when it first came out bought it for video. But... For whatever reason, Sony has decided that when they came out with the FX3, they want that to be the new designated video camera, not the A7S3. So if you bought an S3, this kind of does suck because you don't get any of these updates. But at least you now know where, where Sony's you know thought process is. Like they're gonna make the FX3 and the FX30, they're gonna make those their designated video cameras. And the S3 is kind of this hybrid camera that's really good at video, but it's not going to ever have the same abilities as the FX3 or FX30. They've pretty much made that clear. And the updates that I'm talking about are this. The FX3, since its launch, now has focus breathing compensation. It has um, Cine EI mode, which is all I run in the FX6. It's all I ran in the FS7 and FS7 Mark II. If you don't know what Cine EI mode is, Basically, I don't want to go through like a huge thing on what Cine I mode is, but essentially it locks you into using one of the two base ISOs only. So in this case, um, 800 and 12,800. And on top of that, it allows, and then the reason by real quick, a quick note on that, the reason why it locks you in the base ISOs is so that you're always using the camera in its most optimal performance giving you the highest dynamic range and the highest uh, signal to noise ratio that they can give you. Um, so they are giving you a mode, Cine I mode, that locks you into one of the base ISOs. And that's how I work on the FX6. It's in Cine I mode. I either work at 800 or I work at 12,800. One of the two, high base, low base. That's, some, that's your only two options. Other th reasons to run Cine I mode, though, are the ability to rate a LUT. So you can use a LUT to monitor the image, but if you want to, say, overexpose the image, you can make the LUT appear darker in the camera so that you overexpose the image to make it look correctly. So on screen, it looks correct, but in actuality, you're actually overexposing the image. It just doesn't look overexposed. And that's because you rated the LUT to look darker, so naturally you shoot brighter, and that forces you to overexpose the image, but without having to look at an overexposed image. And then in post, when you look at the image in post, it will be two stops brighter than how you shot than how it appeared on screen, but then you could pull it back down to even exposure and post. You might want to do that if you are trying to have really clean shadows, for example. You might also do the opposite, right? You might rate your LUT to look like it is 
um, uh, brighter than it actually is. So it forces you to underexpose the, the image so that you protect the highlights. So there's ways that you can rate the LUTs to look darker or brighter, forcing you when you're looking at the monitor to either over or underexpose, depending on what you want to do. That is how things used to be done in film, and that's how it's done with a lot of cameras, um, that a lot of cinema cameras today. So if you go work with like um, a Sony Venice, for example, that's how the Venice is going to be ran. Um, so I know if you don't run Cine EI, you might be wondering why would you do that, but there is a lot of benefit to it, and. That is what you're going to experience when you work with a lot of higher-end cinema cameras. And so when you work with something like the FX6 or the FX9, or even previously the FS7s, you are working in the same methodology that you would be using if you were operating one of the more expensive cinema cameras. So your, your process, your post-process and capture process is still kind of the same as it would be if you're running something like an Aerie. Um, so the FX3 got a firmware update giving it Cine EI mode. So if you're used to running Cine EI mode like I am, like I run Cine EI mode exclusively in the FX6, the only time I don't run Cine EI mode is if I am live streaming and I'm shooting to S-Cinetone. But other than that, I'm shooting an S-Log3, S-Cam3.Cine, and I'm running in Cine EI mode. And so the FX3, now that it has that via a firmware update, that means I can run the FX3 exactly like I do the FX6, meaning I can rate my LUTs and operate only with two base ISOs. And that's a tremendous way to work. And with the firmware update, you can change base ISOs with a single touch of a button. So you can set a custom button to where you hit it, hit it and it goes from 800 to 12,800 by a tap of a button. So if you're going from a, uh, an outdoor scene to an indoor scene and the lighting inside is not the best and you don't have time to light because you're shooting a dock, go inside, hit a button, boom, you're at 12,800. Super great. The FX3 also got a firmware update that allows it to run uh, a custom button for changing frame rates. The A7S3 can't do that. That's super useful because in the FX3, you can tap a button and switch from 24 to 30 or 60 or anything like that by just hitting a button and changing your frame rate. I think you can only go up to 60 frames if you're shooting in uh, XAVCSI because you have to go to SNQ mode to, to shoot 120 in XAVCSI, which is what I do. But still, the fact that you can switch from 24 to 30 to 60 with a custom button is amazing. And that's something the S3 can't do. So if I'm working and I quickly want to change frame rates, I tap that custom button and pick the next frame rate and go. And I love that. So that's something else the FX3 got. The FX3 also got LUT support. You know, I said that you can rate LUTs, but you can't rate LUTs if you don't have LUTs. And it does have LUTs now. So you can load custom LUTs in the camera. This is the first time I've owned a mirrorless camera that could... Um, load custom LUTs, which is so useful. So I can run the same custom LUT for monitoring the image on my FX3 that I run on my FX6, which is awesome. And the FX3 also got a designated video menu now that is underneath the user menu. And it's just got all the designated video things that you would need right under one small little menu, which is fantastic. And S3 never got anything like that. Um, it has just the, tra just the traditional menus. And again, um, like I said, the FX3 got things like focus breathing compensation and other tools that just make it a better video tool. And really importantly to me, the FX3 got timecode via a firmware update, meaning that now you can run a timecode or run timecode into the camera with a timecode cable and run timecode just like how you'd run timecode on something like an FX6 or FX9. Now, the FX6 and FX9 have what's called a BNC timecode port, allowing you to plug um, like a timecode generator, like a tentacle sync, for example, into the camera with a BNC cable. And that is a proper way to run timecode. On the FX3, there is no BNC port, but with the firmware update, you can plug into the multi-shoe port a cable that Sony makes, and it is a multi-shoe to BNC cable. And that cable allows you to take something like a tentacle sync and connect it to this cable via uh, a BNC, uh, via BNC, and then take that cable and plug it in the FX3 through the multi-shoe. And so with this little cable that Sony makes, you can run, even though the camera doesn't have a BNC port, you can still run actual timecode in the camera with a timecode counter and everything. You see on the A7S3, the A1, the A7R5, even the Canon cameras that don't have BNC ports, to run timecode, you'd have to use something like a tentacle sync and run timecode into the audio jack. And what happens is, is the audio jack gets a little signal, this 
signal, and that's a time code signal. And then in post, you have to convert that time code signal to an actual time code, which in programs like DaVinci Resolve is really simple, but it's still better to have an actual time code being recorded. It saves you that extra step in post. Plus, I like being able to see the time code counter so I can look at it and make sure it looks exactly like the time code counter on my FX6. So visibly, I can tell that they're the same. And on top of that, when you use something like a tentacle sync into the audio port of a, cam a camera like the A7S III, for example, that means you're losing the audio port. You can't use it for anything else because you're running time code through it. Technically, you can run a splitter into the time, like for into the time code generator, and then um, run that into the audio port, and then split like a shotgun mic into the next channel, for example. But then you have to like de-split that in post and make two separate mono channels. It's just a whole bunch of work. So you don't have to do any of that on the FX3. If you want to run time code on the FX3, just plug it into that cable that Sony makes and plug it in the multi-shoot port. Now you got time code and your audio jack is still free and can still be used for whatever you want to use it for. That is a much more proper way to run time code. And you can even jam it. So let's say you don't want to use a cable at all. You could take the cable and plug it into your camera and plug it into the FX6, for example, and then tell it to match the FX6's time code and then unplug the cable. And it'll hold that time code for at least an hour, which is useful if you just want to quickly run it on a gimbal without any wires or anything and still have it be synced to your FX6 or to your audio recorder or whatever. So you can jam it and it won't lose its jam spot for at least an hour, which is super useful. Most of the time, I just plug the tentacle sync into the camera and leave it on all the time. But if I do want to put the camera in a gimbal and I don't want anything attached to it, I'll jam it, get my gimbal shots, and then when I'm done, plug the cable back in. So it's super great that it has real time code. I use time code in all my work for the most part because I love being able to sync up my A cam and B cam with a click of a button and post. It's very easy. Time code is a huge part of my workflow. And so having an actual designated time code in the camera that's a legit time code, not an audio-driven audio time code, is very, very, very useful. Now, I still use tentacle syncs with time code being uh, inserted into the audio jack of my A1s when I run them as C cams, but to have my main B cam run a legit time code is amazing. So I love that this camera got that update. The A7S III never got that update. So that, to me, is super, super useful and is a feature I utilize in the FX3 all the time. The FX3 even got a firmware update giving it um, anamorphic de-squeezing capabilities in camera, which the FX6 has recently got a firmware update for that as well. So if you want to run anamorphic glass on your FX3, you can de-squeeze it in camera so you're viewing it proportionately on the monitor. Now, I use small HD monitors on most of my cameras. So I'd run like an ND5 on my FX3 and a Cine 5 on my FX6. And I can de-squeeze to any ratio of de-squeezing de that I want in those monitors. But if I was running, let's say, an anamorphic lens in the FX3 and I wanted to put it on the gimbal without a monitor, it's really cool that you can de-squeeze the image in camera and see it de-squeeze in the monitor without having an having to have an external monitor attached. It's very useful. Now, they don't have a lot of ratios in that you can de-squeeze yet, but they do have some. So if you pay attention to that, you can just get and rent anamorphic glass that can be used by that ratio and you are good to go. Um, I do think they'll probably come out with more ratio options in the future, but they don't they haven't yet. But still, the fact that you can de-squeeze some anamorphics in camera now is really useful. So as you can see, the FX3 has gotten a ton of features that the A7S3 never got. They even changed the base ISO. So I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I would I would say something about this, but the A7S3 had a base ISO of 640 on the low base and 12,800 on the high base. Whereas when the FX6 came out a little while later, it was 800 and 12,800. And that always kind of was weird to me because they had the same sensor. So why is one camera, I mean, both of them had the same base ISO at the high end, but why is the low base different on one camera versus the other? Why is one 640 and the other 800? And when the FX3 came out, it too had a low base of 640, but now in Cine EI mode with the firmware update, they've changed it to 800, which to me makes more sense. So now if you run the FX3, as a B cam to the FX6, the base ISOs are identical. So you can set them both to 800 
or both to 12,800 and have the exact same performance out of both, which makes more sense to me. Um, so I, I like that they changed that so that you're running them in the exact same position as an A cam B cam. And that makes sense. So you have an A cam B cam combo that run the same sensor and the same Cine EI mode and the same base ISOs, which is super, super useful. So overall, I think it's an amazing camera. And again, the autofocus is tremendous. The IBIS is very useful. The, the, the ergonomics outside of the joystick are tremendous. It's a great, great camera. The touchscreen works well. Touchscreen tracking works well. I love it. I haven't had any overheating issues with it. You can't add a, a, a battery grip, unfortunately, to this camera like you can in S3, but I run V-mounts, right? So the way I have my FX3 set up is, and, and if you haven't seen this, go to the Filming with Josh Facebook group and watch my FX3 um, video that breaks down my FX3 rig. But essentially, you know, I've got the FX3 with the, with the, with the uh, small rig cage and the NATO rail on top. And on the bottom, I have an Arca Swiss plate. And then that Arca Swiss plate slides into a V-mount plate that Small Rig makes that they recently came out with. And it's just a plate that holds a V-mount battery to the back and has Arca Swiss plate on the bottom. So I have an Arca Swiss on the camera, and then I can slide that plate onto the camera and have a V-mount battery now. And that plate has its own Arca Swiss plate, so it still keeps everything via Arca Swiss. And by doing that, I can add a V-mount to the back of the camera without needing rails. And that V-mount allows me, I run a small rig V-mount, and it allows me to run D-tap to my monitor, D-tap to dummy battery on the monitor, and power the monitor from the V-mount. And then I run a, a USB-C to USB-C from the um, V-mount battery to the camera. So I'm powering the camera via USB-C, and I'm powering the monitor via D-tap to dummy battery. And that allows me to power the camera and the monitor from one V-mount battery. And I have the 99 series small rig battery, which is similar to like a 98 watt battery, which I run a 98 watt Hawk Woods battery in my FX6. So I'm getting the same wattage basically on the FX6 as my A7S3, or my FX3, I mean. And both cameras are being powered by the, that, that wattage, and both monitors are being powered by the same battery. So both my FX6 and my and my FX3 can power the camera and the monitor with one battery. And both of them get similar battery life. So when I'm running the A cam B cam combo of an FX3 FX6, I'm getting very similar battery life out of both cameras. Uh, and that's amazing. It allows me to run both of them on a tripod for an interview, for example, unless they were filming hours worth of interview content, I'm going to get similar battery life out of both, which is awesome. To run V-mounts in the S3, because the ergonomics are so different, I'd have to run completely different setup and I'd have to build the camera up with a bigger cage and everything else just to be able to get similar performance. And so I feel that the ergonomics of the camera, the cages that are available for the camera, and the ability to add things like V-mounts, top handles, and monitors and stuff so easily, thanks to the quarter 20 holes, the NATO rail abilities, stuff like that, makes this camera way more viable as a video tool. The S3 is great as a hybrid camera. If you're just going to pick it up, shoot handheld with it, take photos with it, switch it to video mode, shoot video, it's great for that. But if you're looking for a tool that is a designated video tool, something that can be ran in the same Cine EI mode as your bigger camera, your FX6 or FX9, something that can be mounted to a gimbal or a jib or a car mount or a or a slider or, or a drone and can then easily be built up to a, a more proper video rig with V-mount batteries and, and a top handle and a monitor and, and time code and everything else with just a few pieces and no tools required, like this is the camera to buy. It's such a great B-cam for those bigger cameras. And yes, you have the FX30 now too, but it's not full frame. I like running full frame. I'm a full frame snob. I run full frame on all my cameras. So um, I, I like I just like full frame. So uh, to me, this makes a perfect B camera to a camera like the FX6 and FX9 because you're going to get the same Cine EI mode on both. You're going to get the same base ISOs um, on both if you're running the FX6. The FX9 has different base ISOs. But if you're running FX6, for example, this is the natural B cam for you because you're getting the same base ISOs, the same Cine EI mode, um, the ability to put the same LUTs on both cameras, the ability to... Um, 
run time code on both cameras, etc. You, I mean, naturally, they were just like made to go together. And Sony knew that when they made it. They knew that the FX3 was the perfect B camera to the FX6. And I think that's why they gave it all the firmware updates that they never gave the A7S3. Because the S3 is a good hybrid tool, but they're like, hey, if you are serious about video and you have something like an FX6, buy the FX3 because it's the perfect B camera. We're going to give it most of the features of the FX6. Not all. It doesn't have built-in ND. It doesn't have SDI ports or cache recording or a built-in BNC you know, port or things like that. But it's going to have most of the features of the FX6. And you can run it in the same formats with the same base size SOs to make, this, to make them, and, and again, with time code on both, so they cut together seamlessly to make them the perfect A-cam, B-cam combo. And that's exactly what it is. And I love the FX3 so much, in fact, that I quite, finding, I quite often am finding myself picking it up and leaving my FX6 at home when I want to run a smaller, lighter camera. The other day I was shooting for the Sonogram company I mentioned earlier in the podcast. And uh, the second day of our shoot, we were shooting at a hospital and it was like on the fourth floor. And we we were already, we'd already done all the interviews and stuff the day before at their uh, headquarters. But on this day we were filming in a hospital and all the interviews and stuff were done. And I didn't want to drag an absolute ton of gear up to the fourth floor of this hospital and across the parking lot and everything else. So I just brought uh, an Aperture 600D with a light dome, and I brought one C-stand, a tripod, and an FX3 bag. And that was it, and with a few lenses. Nothing else. I didn't even bring the FX6. And I shot handheld pretty much the entire time in the hospital for the sonogram project that second day and didn't even bring the FX6 up. And I shot on sticks, too. But the point is, is I like it so much that I felt completely comfortable taking it into the hospital that day as the only camera and leaving my FX6 in the truck. Now, the FX6 is still amazing. It's still my A-cam for most things. But the FX3 is so good that I'm completely comfortable with picking it up over the FX6 for many projects. Not even as a B-cam, but even as an A-cam. Like, I've been shooting this project for this uh, nonprofit called Explore Austin. And we're filming um, them as they teach kids about how to how to uh, build tents, how to go camping, how to start a fire, how to rock climb, how to mountain bike, how to go fly fishing. They just teach kids about the outdoors uh, at ages like sixth grade through 12th grade. And I'm doing uh, a new mission video for them and we're shooting it throughout the year because I'm going different places and shooting different things and different events that are going to be all in this um, mission video. But it's a perfect type of project for the FX3, right? Because I'm finding myself wanting to run a light camera system that I can run around with to film these kids with. I'm shooting a lot of stuff handheld. Ibis is useful for that. And being able to um, have something that's small and pack I can hike with when we're filming hiking stuff. I can easily take it to campsites to film the camping scenes. It's small, compact. I can take it in a 24 to 70 with some Nisi filters and for my ND. And I can easily film an entire project on just that setup with, you know, a camera, a few lenses and a tripod. And I love that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still love my FX six, but this camera for that kind of work where you want to pack small and light is perfect. And I can run that with a V mount battery, a top handle and an external monitor and a shotgun mic and, and a time code box and still have a smaller, lighter compact than my FX6, which the FX6 is not super big or heavy in, in, to begin with, but still it's even smaller and lighter and it's extremely well balanced with the V-mount on the back and you're getting tremendous battery life and are powering the monitor all with this one V-mount. So I could shoot like all day with one to two V-mount battery. I only own two because I never need more than that in a single day. And so I can just like go out and shoot a whole day's worth of content handheld on the FX3 and throw some tentacle sync trackies on people for lav miking. And it's just amazing. Um, it allows me to just run and gun super fast with a smaller compact setup on days or projects where I just don't want to bring my bigger video camera. So I don't just love it as a B camera, but I even am finding myself using it as an A camera on many shoots where it's just nicer to take something smaller. Plus... I can easily, again, because of the design, I can take the V-mount battery off, the monitor off, the handle off without any tools. So I can strip this thing from a full rig to just the body in like 20 seconds and have just the body that I can throw on a gimbal or a slider or whatever. So if I'm packing out to film content of these kids hiking, I can throw a gimbal in my backpack and when we get to where we're going, if I want to get a gimbal shot, I can take everything off the camera and have it broken down to just the body and the lens in like 20 or 30 seconds, throw it on the gimbal, get my gimbal shots, put the gimbal up, and put the pieces back on. And it's just really great and is so versatile. And I love my A1s. They're great. But 
they're not proper video cameras. They're great as C cams or great as photo cameras. I have two. I use them all the time, especially for photography or for projects where I'm doing a hybrid of video and photography, like what I do for hunting outfitter marketing. But when it comes to a designated video camera that you're running as either a B camera or as a smaller A camera, I don't think it gets better than the FX3. The FX30 is a similar option if you want to save some money and you don't mind shooting with APS-C, but if you want full frame, FX3 is like the perfect B camera, especially if you're in the Sony system, and is better than the S3, especially now that you have all the firmware updates, um, plus the fact you do have the top handle if you needed it, and the ergonomics and the bolts and, and the quarter 20 holes and all that do lend itself to being a better option for mounting parts and pieces to it. So I think it is just a tremendous camera. I have only one negative thing to say about it, and that's that the joystick should be on the back of the camera, not on the top of the camera. But that is literally the only negative thing I have to say about the whole camera. It is very rare that I love a camera so much that I only have one negative thing to say about it, and that is the FX3. Thanks, guys, for listening to this podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, rate the podcast and be sure to subscribe to it. And if you didn't like it, let me know. Shoot me a PM on Facebook or shoot me an email at josh at rusticriver.media and let me know what you don't like about the podcast. But I thank you all for listening in, and I'll see you all next week. Take care. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.